For April 11th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 145, Propinquity Fecundity. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve, with an entirely new microphone setup and the old broken down one lying in a pitiful heap on the floor. I am your non-crackly host, Matthew Rather, here with the panel to overthink all manner of things. We're uh, we're leaving the summer movie preview off for uh, a little while. Maybe we'll get back to it next week, maybe the week after. But uh, we got you. I think we got you into the month of uh, the month of April or May last time, so we um, we can leave that be and pick up with some uh, <laughs> pick up with some unrelated randomness as we are often want to do. Now, um, Pete mentioned in, in our run-up to recording the show that he had just finished uh, watching season five of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and it, it led to this question. What, um, what second or third tier American city would you like to uh, <laughs> set A? And I, I'm not the one who formulated it that way, so I apologize on behalf of whatever anonymous podcaster uh, formulated the question in that way. Uh, what American city, not of the first tier, shall we say, uh, would you like to set a sit? come in and uh pete fenzel i guess you're first in the alpha oh wait what wait my friend what pete i'm sorry the crown has been taken away from you for the mat has come back to the podcast that's Finally. right matt Palinky <laughs> is going to give the people's answer to the people's <laughs> question <laughs> He's going to make the people's jokes about the people's popular culture. He's going to raise the people's standard of discourse. It's going to be part of another indefinitely extended uh, introductory question, guys. It's been a while. Um, you know what? This is an interesting question because I think a lot of the a lot of the answers that that I would have suggested have have already been put into practice. Uh, there's a show on HBO called Hung, which is set in Detroit. Which I, I the people in Detroit would probably argue with this, but I would say that at this point it is a second or third tier, tier city. Uh, obviously, very it's become sort of like a microcosm of the country at large, which has sort of um, fallen upon hard times, and it's trying to cling to what's left of its dignity and perhaps get a RoboCop statue to get it back on its way. Uh, and I think that that works very well. That in Hong it uses the the setting to sort of uh, you know as as a, another character on the show. Um, I thought uh, Reno actually worked really well in Reno 911. Once again, it was sort of something where it wouldn't have worked if it were Las Vegas 911, because Las Vegas is sort of big and larger than in charge, and Reno is sort of like a, a, a little bit more humble, a little bit um, more more likable in its threadbareness. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and say Austin, Texas, because I think the mm. thing that's interesting about Austin, Texas, is it's sort of this... Um, uh, Brooklyn, you know, it's like a little slice of, of hippie culture dropped into the middle of, like, you know, the reddest of all the red states. Uh, you know, that like, Austin is the home of a South by Southwest. I know it's got, like, a, uh, it's got a thriving indie film scene. I believe uh, uh, Robert Rodriguez makes his films out of Austin, the Austin area. Um, and so, that like, I think you can do a very interesting sitcom where you have a bunch of very sort of crunchy, um, ultra-liberal, uh, uh, white-collar artist types. And then you have this sort of, like, uh, 
this other strata of characters, which is this sort of like died in the wool Texans, and like you know maybe they work together at like some sort of like software company or like some sort of company that would need both the 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 Hank Hill style Texans, and also this sort of like you know I'm I'm more of a an uh, iPhone carrying tweeting. Uh, you know, a threadless t-shirt wearing uh, type Texan. And I think that Mm -hmm. could be, I don't know what you'd call it. Um, uh, I'm open to suggestions on titles. Yeah. Excellent. Pete Fenzel, on to you. Oh, cool. Okay, so um, so I have uh, certain fascinations with certain sort of geographical features in the United States. Um, And then one of them is, is throughout upstate New York, all of the the elements of the Erie Canal and and on all the parts of uh, the Great Lakes region and and uh, and I just find all that to be pretty interesting and, and fairly underexplored uh, stuff. So I think after much deliberation that I would probably set my sitcom in Buffalo, New York, which is a city that I feel like never really gets has cultural has been culturally identified, right? I mean, it's identified with the Buffalo Bills, right, coming in second in the Super Bowl all those years. Um, but it's hard to tell because if you meet people from Buffalo, they tend to be very nice. Right, uh, but you know they're from New York. I remember uh, a, a discussion we had in college at one point. Although none of the people on this call were particularly involved in the discussion, it was like around us in an email thread uh, where it was like, "Well, what is the best you know uh, hockey team uh, or sports team in New York?" Right, and, and the Sabers didn't even get mentioned, and the Bills don't even get mentioned because they're not really in New York. And plus, Buffalo has Niagara Falls, which is totally awesome and has hilarious things happen. I don't know what time, uh, and is. Sort of fascinating, bizarre place, especially now that it's kind of like was in vogue and is like passed so far out of vogue. That I feel like Niagara Falls might be ready for a comeback in much the same way that like you can now go to a fancy restaurant and get like Wiener Schnitzel uh, because like German food is kind of making a comeback or baked Alaska. Like, that used or to be something. cool and yeah. they're not cool anymore, and if it's been uncool for long enough, they, they come back around. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's something old timey about it. And old timey is cool. Old timey is in. So yeah, so I don't know. I don't know whether you center it around Niagara Falls. I don't know if you center it around the lake. I don't know whether you just put it in Buffalo and you call it something else. I mean you could make it a sports fan sitcom, but there have been a lot of those. Um I just I'm curious as to why people are in Buffalo. Like what are they doing there? And there's a lot of them. Like Buffalo, uh, I looked it up, is the seventieth largest city in the United States with two hundred and sixty one thousand three hundred and ten people, um, which I counted by hand by Wikipedia uh in two thousand and ten. Um so yeah, so I mean there's a lot of people there, there's a lot of stories in the naked well it's not naked because it's too cold there's a lot of stories in the Gore-Tex clad city uh, and, uh, <laughs> in, the fleece, a- in the fleece insulated city Exactly. And you call it every part of the buffalo and it's about all the different people who live in different parts of the city. Oh, we should have we should have in, we should have insisted that uh, that you make a name. Matt, do you have a name for your show? I'm still working on it. I'm, I'm googling frantically to try to come up with a pun. Got it. Not lo- lost in Austin doesn't work. Or Lost in Austin, yeah, all right. I'm but that, but Lost in Austin is about Jane Austen. That's a show about Jane Austen that, I, that I'm familiar with. Jane Austen who gets stuck in time. Did I, does anyone remember <laughs> the ninth season of the Smurfs where they got those time crystals and they got stuck in, in time? Oh, like <laughs> yesterday. Yeah, nobody else remember the season of the Smurfs where they got like stuck in like uh, like medieval France and they had to like, help Joan of Arc and stuff. I, I didn't swear this exists. I'm providing I a link. The, I didn't even realize the Smurfs had seasons per se. Like, like there was a lot of turnover and syndication, and you know, showrunners and things like that. <laughs> you Google, you Google. Um, sorry, I can't say Google tonight. You Google the Smurfs that time forgot, and you will become educated. <laughs> Excellent. Are you sure it's not the Smurfs that Smurf for Smurfed? <laughs> 
You know, not all verbs have to be replaced with smurf. You mean we're smurf? <laughs> smurf. <laughs> you know, if I were to try to promote the new Smurfs movie virally, I would I would have some sort of uh, Smurf to English dictionary that I would put out, and it would just be like every word translates into Smurf. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Smurf this Smurf. But it's, I mean, is, is Smurf unconjugated? Does it, you know, I Smurf, you Smurf, he, she, or it Smurfs? Uh, we Smurf. Y'all Smurf. I, Smurf. I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know sadly enough about grammar to. But what's what's the opposite of an expletive? Where an expletive is a part of a sentence that can be removed and and not change its meaning. Whereas if you remove the the word Smurf from a sentence, it's no longer a sentence. Like so, it becomes essential all of a sudden. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, Whatever that is, that's what it is. It is. <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, let's smurf. Let's smurf right on to Parrish. Hey, John, what's what's going on? Hello. So we're still on. Uh, what what second tier city would be the setting for a? Uh, so, so does it have to be specifically a comedy type, like a sitcom or? No, or no. You can do it. You can pitch an hour long drama if you want a, a, a gritty cable drama. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna do a. I'm gonna do a sitcom anyway. So. My, but I'm not. It's not a specific city, and in fact, it might just be an unincorporated township, uh, namely just any of the suburbs surrounding DC. So, as as our international so Chevy Ch- Chevy know, Chase Maryland, Chevy Chase, for instance, or you know Alexandria or somewhere like that. So, as our international listeners may not know, or maybe not everyone in the country knows, the the suburbs surrounding DC are some of the most expensive places to live in the country, if not the world. Largely because of their proximity to D.C. and because the people who live there, you know, are, are probably getting money from, you know, companies that they're lobbying for or from government contracts or things like that. So they don't really care what they pay for. And they're not they're not substantially nicer suburbs than anywhere else in the country. There's just really, really a lot of demand. So I wouldn't even throw the political aspect into it. I'd just have it be like a like a desperate housewives or a modern family or something like that just set in one of the you know, most expensive suburbs in the country and just the, the weird, weird lifestyle choices and behavioral changes that that sort of thing engenders. Awesome. Um, do you have a title? Uh, no, I was, I, I kind of wanted to shoot that to you guys. Chasing, you chasing, a title? chasing Chevy. <laughs> that would, that would work. Uh, that would the work. The army of Northern Virginia. <laughs> <laughs> uh, too soon, too soon. <laughs> Fair enough. Too soon. Sure. 150 years is, is too soon. What about what about like uh, the other the other uh, the other Maryland or something like that? The idea is that it's the Maryland that you don't see in the wire. Yeah, it's it's interesting because you know having having moved having moved from Maryland to Boston, almost all of the other people I've met from Maryland were from that area of Maryland, the the Southern Maryland, you know, DC corridor area. I think I know only one or two other people up here from uh, Northern Baltimore County, which is where I'm from, from you know the streets, huh. <laughs> the mean streets. The mean streets of Towson. <laughs> awesome. All right. Um, on to me. Finally, uh, my uh, my fictional sitcom will be set in the town of Daggett, California, which I think it might be stretching to call a second or even a third or perhaps even a fourth or fifth tier city. Is um, it even a real place? It sounds like it could be fictional. Yes. Daggett is on Interstate 15 between... Um, uh, between Los Angeles and Las Vegas, 
but uh, it's it uh, has this claim to fame. There's a weather station there. So if you're in Los Angeles and you're getting the weather in the region, it will always one of the lines will always be like in Daggett. It was 98 degrees today. And, you know, and it's why. Why is Daggett uh, on there? Well, haha, because Daggett is near the bigger city of Barstow. And so my show will be called Daggett Gateway to Barstow and will involve Daggett's uh, Daggett's two. um uh, sort of distinguishing features. One, it's on the route between Los Angeles and Las Vegas, so lots of trouble blows into town that way. And our heroes, who run a uh, who run an old timey kind of, you know, road roadside diner. Um, do you have Bob's Big Boy back east? Do you know what that is? If I if I said that to you, no. Oh yeah, we're familiar. Or like a uh, like a like a friend. I like your yeah. Like a friendlies or a you know I don't know Rob Roy's or you know I don't know something like that uh, Howard Johnson's with a not a hotel just a you know restaurant anyway um, but the you know sort of formica counters you know brick not brick uh, sort of stone walls and kind of sixties uh, architecture um, you know they they work there and trouble blows into town and then also it's the um, it's. Uh, it's the terminus of interstate, the kind of the western terminus of Interstate 40. So all kinds of trouble, uh, you know, blows west across Interstate 40, across the Texas panhandle uh, from Arkansas uh, or wherever Interstate 40 goes. I think it, it starts in Arkansas. And... Um, or maybe passes through it, or maybe I'm totally wrong about that. Uh, Tennessee, uh, Arkansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico. Wow, there's a detailed Wikipedia page for Interstate 40, um, and all kinds of things go. Mm-hmm. You know about the interstate system, right? That uh, Interstate 10 is the uh, the southernmost, and Interstate 90 the northernmost. Uh, east-west thoroughfares in the country, and they go 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. Do you we know that? Now. Yeah, now there you go. Julie uh, this is this is this is forty, so it's a little bit south of the middle of the <laughs> of the country, <laughs> and it terminates in Daggett Gateway to Barstow. Do you have a name for this show, Matt? It's called Daggett Gateway to Barstow. Can you call it like Dag Nabbit? <laughs> <laughs> Gateway to Bar Nabbit Stow? No, because those aren't real place names, and that would just can, can be silly. Can you call it Smurfing My Smurf in Smurfness? In Smurf Town? <laughs> So we're gonna get uh, we're gonna get to it's always sunny in Philadelphia and our other topics in just a minute. But we have a new sponsor. That's right. There's someone new advertising on the what? podcast, and uh, it's us again, but for a different thing. <laughs> <laughs> again? Okay, yeah. fair enough. We yeah, I know we we're foolish enough to keep buying ad space on our own podcast. Um, the accounting for which is very, very, uh, very, very difficult. We have a new episode of The Overview out, uh, and it's uh, The Overview of The Karate Kid, and John uh, is the only person on the podcast tonight who was on it, so maybe John can, uh, can sell us on The Karate Kid. Uh, tell, us what, tell us what you talked about a little bit. Why, why, uh, why should we listen to The Overview of The Karate Kid, John? Eh, no reason. No, I'm kidding. It's a, it's a great <laughs> podcast. <laughs> 
It's a great overview. It's it's a really fun one. It's myself, uh, Mark Lee, and Dave Schechner talking about oh, all sorts of things about the the geography of Southern California, about Orientalism and the the, na- the notion of the other. Who you know, there's really more than one other other than just Mr. Miyagi in the film. But I will leave it to you to find out who about the the notion of martial arts both as an American practice and where it comes from in uh, in Japan and Okinawa. Uh, all sorts of great stuff, and about bikes, about having a sweet ass bike. <laughs> and by bike, you mean <laughs> you mean bicycle. You don't mean motorcycle, right? Uh, yes. Uh, if that wasn't clear, yes, I mean bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> um, awesome. So, a uh, couple things about it. One, we've reduced the price on the overview. You can get the overview for only. $2.99 on overthinkingit.com slash store. And, uh, and what's more, in honor of the Japanese um, uh, you know, origins of karate, we, uh, we will be donating one um, dollar for every, uh, out of every purchase, about a third of, of our take you know, for, uh, uh, for the overview to Japanese earthquake and tsunami relief. So uh, you, you're doing good by buying the overview. You're entertaining yourself. And uh, in case you don't know, the overview is our series of alternative commentaries for some of your favorite movies, all of which we only choose ones that are available on Netflix streaming so that you, you probably already have access to this film. Um, for no additional money. And so uh, for a couple bucks, you can listen to us talk about it. You can play the track while you watch the movie. It's timed up with the movie. And you can uh, listen to what we have to say with your, uh, with your smart, funny, fake internet friends from overthinkingit.com. So uh, the overview. We the, love you. We do. Yay, you're the best. Um, and we want to spend. <laughs> and we want to spend no, the. You want to spend the, the, the afternoon or, you know, a lazy Saturday morning or a lonely Saturday night with you, making, uh, making it a little less lonely with the, the sound of, of John Parrish, Dave Schechner, and Mark Lee in your ears, which is, I know, what I crave uh, most weekends. So get it at overthinkingit.com slash <laughs> slash. Sorry, I was, just, I was just visualizing something. <laughs> overthinkingit.com slash store. Uh, the overview. Proud sponsor of the Overthinking It podcast. All right, we're back. So, Pete, what do you – I, you know, I stopped watching It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia in the second season because I thought the, the characters uh, had, had crossed the line from kind of comically unlikable to really repugnant. And, um, and I just I, – I wasn't getting pleasure out of it anymore, you know? I, I felt like it was one of those things where – you know how New Yorker magazines can pile up in the corner of your house or, you know, I, maybe whatever your equivalent is of a um, – you know, some kind of periodical, some kind of, you know, serialized thing that you, you know you ought to get to or you feel like you ought to get to, but it's kind of a slog, uh, you know, yeah. because each, each um, individual engagement with the, uh, with the product involves so much uh, uh, just, you know, I don't know, seems to take a lot out of you. That's how I felt about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia after, after a certain amount of time. Um, so uh, am, I, am I wrong? Was I wrong? Like... <laughs> You're, I don't know if you're wrong. Maybe you're just soft. <laughs> maybe, you're just, maybe you're just weak. No, 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 no. It's not that you're weak. Um, I mean, I was. I've been thinking about this. I think I'm pretty thoroughly desensitized to uh, unlikability on television. I, I, it's very rare that I find like, oh, I'm not gonna. I don't like this character because they are a bad person. 
um, or because they're I don't know. I mean, I, I know what I do have characters for whom I'm sympathetic and versus unsympathetic. But like the people on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the sins that they commit. I mean, they do some fairly major things, right? They hurt people. Uh, they they do a lot of illegal stuff. <laughs> Excuse me. They hurt each other a lot. Um, but but they do it with gusto. Right, and so uh, I think that the thing about it that for me makes it work as a comedy, and I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it a lot, and um, uh, and I think the thing that works for me as makes it work for me as a com- as a comedy is how strongly they pursue the way that their characters behave in the given situations. It's almost like an older style of comedy, like it's almost like a like an older. Uh, like French or English style of comedy where like these characters are just they're just dreadnoughts in in the way that they perceive the world right it, it, and they're they're almost they would be stock characters if they were just a little bit simpler um, but but it's like you know Dennis is always always going to be sort of like really high in his opinion of, of his ability to get along with the ladies regardless of what happens right like like Charlie is sort of always going to be his particular sort of breed of crazy regardless of what happens um and I think that maybe that's part of what makes them less identifiable is they kind of become less human, right? They become more um, types. They become more kind of forms. They become more sort of ideas of people. Um, and then I think that you go through this this period where they don't really know what to do with that. And then I think by the fifth season, they pick it up a little bit again. And, and you start seeing – they start seeing them much more comfortable with being really terrible. Because the show was supposed to be called Jerks at one point, right? And that was like the original title of the show. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because the whole idea of the show is that they're bad people. Like they're 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 and not just bad people, bad people. They're jerks. They're, each of them is 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 a you know socially mean to the people around them in a different way, uh, or so, and which is a combination of like they're unpopular because they're not nice, um, and it's either because they're arrogant or they're stupid or they're bossy or they're crazy and unkempt. Um, they're old and dirty. Danny DeVito is so good in this show, by the way, just ridiculous. Um, I don't know if you've ever if you've watched a lot of the episodes with him in it because he's not in the first season. He jumps on for the second season, and it's just his character is done with such verve and such vigor. Um, and his character is like in any other show would be a total throwaway because he's like a dirty old man. But he like will show up. I don't know. I just finished watching an episode where he sh- he's they're all trying to compete to get the attention of this girl who works in a pharmacy, right? Because they have like a pecking order for when they when Dennis hits on a girl and gets with her, then they each like they each take the sloppy seconds like in order. And I hate to use the term, but it's like they each sort of like try to pick up the pieces in order. And there's like a pecking order of the different guys that you discover. And like Danny DeVito shows up with like he he like has a he goes to the pharmacy to buy a pack of Magnum condoms and has a bunch of hundred dollar bills like hanging out of his wallet. And like that's the way that he goes about hitting on women. And it's just like <laughs> when, like you you think that Danny DeVito's presence on the show is sort of as a novelty, like oh he's a real TV star and he's going to do some really funny stuff. No, like he. Lo- Lowers himself far as far or farther than anybody else on the show uh, into what the show is trying to accomplish. So yeah, so I would say that I'm not off put by the likability or unlikability of the characters. I do think that the characters become a lot less identifiable um, and and uh, and comfortable after the first season. Uh, and I do think they come around, but I also think that um, they they become kind of like metahuman in certain ways. They they become more performative. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it seems like uh, it's interesting because unlikable characters are one thing, but what you're describing is characters who, in a way, are not even really characters. They're just sort of um, stock types that you just took off a rack and then put into motion. It sort of reminds me, I, you know, I I don't I haven't watched enough of the show uh, 
uh, to weigh in on this particular show. I used to be a huge Family Guy fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, first few seasons, this is back before you could get it on DVD, and I literally got bootleg DVDs off of YouTube. Uh, not YouTube. YouTube didn't exist. Uh, yeah. eBay. Which is what we did yeah. before YouTube existed when we wanted to see uh, things on TV. I remember, um, Matt, you and I watched the whole third season of The Sopranos actually pretty much in one day off of, I think, one or two uh, EP bootlegged VHS cassettes. Do you remember right, that? Right. So, I mean, like, you know, I was a huge evangelist for Family Guy. This is before its triumphant return the first time. And I found that at a certain point, I got really turned off by the show. And now I can't stand it because I felt like at a certain point, the writers gave up on trying to make these people characters, trying Mm. to make them act in ways that were recognizably human and just basically use them as uh, hangers on which to put a series of jokes. And mm. the show just became a joke delivery system. And, I mean, I, I think you could, you could trust this with a show like The Office, which I think gets a lot of its mileage and humor out of the fact that these characters have a lot of heart and the, the things that they want are very identifiable. And we sort of, we're sad when they're sad and we're happy when they're, they're happy. Um, and then there are the shows in the middle, like... Um, like Arrested Development or like 30 Rock in which the characters are sort of they're they're pushed to the sort of limit of being caricatures but like maybe they still have their moments at which you can identify with them mm-hmm. so I mean I, I think I, I'm sort of wondering underneath the fact that these, that these people are sort of like these these jerks you know as, as you call yeah. them do you sort of are you able to sort of identify them and being that like yeah i've had my moments just like that and like that's why i like watching the show is because like these these situations represent real situations that we find ourselves in yeah i think it's it's sort of like a dark mirror situation mm-hmm. it's still a very character driven show it's not like family guy in, in terms of being jokey um, and they, they, there definitely aren't as many situations where the tension of the show is immediately relieved because there's some sort of joke going on. Like, so, so for example, uh, there was just a scene in the episode. I'm actually halfway through the last episode, uh, right before the, the podcast started, um, in the last episode of season five, where they've deter- they found out that they've been unbanned from this annual flip cup tournament, uh, be- among all the different bars in Philadelphia, because they run a bar in Philadelphia. So they go to their rival bar and they were banned 10 years ago for poisoning their rivals in like a flip cup competition. And they like, they like run into the bar, which has now become sort of a fancy gastro pub, like for like older people and like, just sort of like trash the place and like, and like heckle people and like taunt everybody. And they call out the the manager to sort of declare their challenge against him, at which point he's like sort of flabbergasted that they would do this because uh, he doesn't remember really who they are or why. Uh, and then like one of them just like pees. And it's like it's there's this isn't a situation like on Family Guy where like there's like a deadpan moment and a joke. Right. It's, it's a difficult situation to watch. You identify the aspect of humanity that's like driving this forward as sort of something that you, you maybe shared or you recognize that people have. But it's definitely blown out and not past the point of like recognizing it as happening in the world, but definitely past the point of like um, that these people, I mean, I guess you could know these people, but they'd be sociopaths. I mean, they call them out in the show all the time as being sociopaths. The things that they do are just that far over the line that like you wouldn't be able to do it and not be crazy. Maybe part of what makes it believable is that this, that they do sort of like allow for a world in which there are a pretty dark, crazy people in it. Uh, so here's- I explain it. Here's here's the issue I had with it. To, to, if yeah, yeah. this is now airing our grievances with "It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia" night, which I, I like, and I'll, I'll say that too. But yeah, go ahead. 
Here's the issue I had, and I think it's it's the opposite of Rathers. I actually really enjoyed the show for the unlikability of its protagonist. That's really what attracted me to it. But, excuse me, in the first two seasons, the point of it seemed to be that their unlikability clashed head-on, such that they were always constantly scheming to get one up on each other, and by the end of the episode, all of their schemes would somehow become entangled or just collapse under their own weight, and there'd be this sort of grand guignol of morality collapsing down on them. It's like, oh, this is the price we pay for having, you know, schemed so much, only they never actually learn the lesson, because next, ep- next episode they're back at it. And it was by roughly about midpoint of season three that their schemes stopped collapsing because of their own, you know, their own vices or flaws and started collapsing because they were just dumb. Yeah. <laughs> like there, yeah, are a lot of point, yeah. there are a lot of points in season three where they just start doing, they just start doing things that are, are just dumb. Like it, I, I think it's the gang sells out in particular in season three where they, where they almost get bought out by a restaurant chain. And it, it's that they're so perilously close to making lots of money if they would just shut their mouths for three <laughs> seconds. Like there are several scenes where it's like if they could just stop talking and people tell them in the scene to stop talking. And if just like five seconds, they just did that. They would get all the, all the, the self, self-indulgent, short-sighted, material wealth that they've always, always wanted. But they can't because then the, the show would end, so they have to be dumb about getting out of it. Whereas you compare that to, like, season one, where it's like, oh, Dennis is getting too full of himself because all these gay guys like him. Let's hatch this scheme to secretly exploit his homophobia and make him, you know, immediately want to change the bar back the way it was. That was clever, at least. Mm. Yeah. I think a good example of this is the Dennis system episodes near the end where Dennis reveals his sort of like PUA strategy for getting women to fall in love with him, which involves what like it's uh, just demonstrate value, uh, engage physically. Um, uh, oh, gosh. What are, then the ends are like um, uh, it, it has to do with ignoring them. <laughs> and it is like with, and then it ends with like, entirely. So it's, yeah, it's, it's like engage, engage. It's like demonstrate value, engage physically. Um and then, uh, oh, you know what? I have to look this up so I can read it to everybody because, I mean, I look up everything else on the freaking podcast. Why do I can't I look this up? But, but the idea, he tries to, to teach it to everybody. Um, and it's, uh, where is it? Oh, demonstrate value, engage physically, nurture dependence, then neglect emotionally, inspire hope, and then separate entirely. Uh, <laughs> and, and then after, and we learn that after uh, Dennis, uh, there's Mac, the other character, he has the Mac system, which is to move in after completion, which is that after Dennis has discarded the women, he has sex with them. And then Frank has a system called Scraps, which is not an acronym. Uh, <laughs> It's <laughs> from the always it's always sunny wikia.com. Uh, but but basically like he's trying to prove to everybody that the system works because these women call him telling him how much they hate him and he's like oh they love me so much because all I have to do is snap my fingers and they'll come right back to me and so he tries to get one of them to come back right and they and and then like, a variety of the other characters are also having problems with men and women at the same time and he, he sort of has everybody end up at the fair together where everyone is going to use the dentist system and it's all going to get fixed and everything goes totally wrong because none of them can use his system. Them. And it totally ends with like a moment like what what um, John is talking about, where Genesis is like yelling at all of them because they are all getting it wrong in like obvious ways. Like they are not like like uh, Charlie isn't demonstrating value appropriately because he's like he's trying to stab this woman so that he can try to save her life, right? And like it's like that's not how it goes. Like you actually you make sure that she she almost dies and then you bring her to the hospital. And it's just like things like this. It's just like it's like you're not doing it right. And um and you're right that it did definitely turn from like there's almost a Dantean correlation between like the sin and the origin of the sin and the punishment that you suffer, right? Like, like you are going to suffer from being yourself, and the choices that you make will be the reality that you live in. 
Um, it's notable in, in the episode with the newspaper reviewer who decides not to press charges for kidnapping him and duct taking him to a chair for a week. He says, like, I'm not going to press charges only because the hell you've constructed for yourself is worse than any prison anyone could put you in. Um, but it goes from that into something more where it's just like, you're just bad at this. It's like the Gilgamesh solution, which is like, you're just not good enough, Gilgamesh. That's why you failed to get that plant from the bottom of the lake. Like, yeah. You're just not that damn good. Well, the, the obvious contemporary comparison is with Seinfeld, especially in its last couple of seasons where, you know, that, and I've, I've talked about this in the site as well, where, you know, you've got four people, all of whom have schemes to get ahead in, you know, the, the moderately neurotic world of successful New York life, and their schemes, you know, conflict with each other and end up crashing down by the end of the episode. But they're all, they're all at least goal-oriented action. They're all at least teleologically valid. It's like, oh, I have a goal. I'm acting effectively to pursue it. It's just that there are other parties who are equally effective, who are at cross-purposes to me, and our, our vectors just happen to intersect at exactly the wrong time, whereas this is just a, this is just a failed vector. This is just yeah. you know the ball, the ball not even hitting home plate. Yeah. What tends to happen in the later seasons is there's some sort of shiny object. Like, so the characters are, are, are undone because they pursue the things that they want, and the things that they want are the wrong things, right? Or like they want them in the wrong way, or they, their attitudes about them are incorrect. Uh, and there's usually something that somebody wants that like comes around at the end that provides a sort of like final contrapasso on everything that's happened. Um, like I'm reminded of the professional the wrestling for the troops episode where they try to put on like a backyard wrestling tournament to uh, to to support the troops in Iraq, which um, ends up being really gay and unfortunate. And like there's a terrorist in it, and he's really unfortunate. And like Danny DeVito has this wrestling character all ready to go, and he really wants to do it, but no one will let him do it. And after everything else has failed, he like shows up and severely injures like the last remaining character and and it's like and it's like oh like 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 and he's like oh i thought i thought it, you know and there's like he's been discussing the whole time like whether wrestling is fake or not right it's fake but it's also real like because people actually get hurt <laughs> like how i just hurt you um and it's just like there was a the thing that i like about it is that it does emerge from the things that are established about the characters in terms of what they want and what they like uh, and so that way it feels sincere and in that i identify with it i identify with people in a world where they can't have what they want, like sort of reaching out in desperation and trying to get what they want and getting a sort of like mixed victory and failure in that pursuit. Um, you know, I mean, it's interesting. I was thinking, if you go back to the early days of sitcoms, uh, the people that were the main characters were all very likable people, all, all very good people. I'm talking like, you know, Dick Van Dyke, Mary Tyler Moore. Yeah. And then you start to have this, this almost like... Um, a trend line, it goes up and down, you know, because you have all in the family with less likable people, but then you also have the Cosby show. And Bill Cosby is like, you know, a perfect human being. Um, but then you sort of like, I, I feel like within the last 15 years that the sitcoms have become a lot more dark. And, uh, you know, about Seinfeld, I was thinking it was very interesting. The last episode, the very controversial episode, had them literally being put on trial for basically crimes against humanity. And I remember people being very split on this. Um, I mean, both split on the issue of was it funny or not, but also, like, what did we think of the idea that all the Seinfeld characters are literally sent to jail? And that is the final... You know, our, our 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 final view of them is like going to prison for the things that they've done, and like society like shunning them and passing judgment on them, um, because you know certainly not everybody watching Seinfeld is going to be on board with the idea that these are horrible human beings, and yet that's what Larry David clearly thinks. And then you know, moving into more recent sitcoms, especially you know, Arrested Development really is, um, springs to mind. Where they made a lot of jokes on the show about how unlikable this family is. Um, 
And this and this series, you know, seems like, uh, uh, you know, an, uh, yet another extension of that where you have people that um, are really, you know, you describe them as sociopaths. And, and it's sort of the comedy of sociopaths is maybe a, a more recent development um, that like, you know, that, that didn't, you know, like friends is a bunch of really nice people that you'd like to be friends with. And that was mm. the logic behind it, which is that like everybody wants to be friends with this and that's why people tune in. And now you almost get the opposite, which is that like nobody would ever want to be friends with these people. And that's why it's funny. Mm. Well, well, uh, Blinky to well, actually you for a second. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> if we, if we go back a generation earlier than like the Dick Van Dyke show, we get to that point where sitcom characters are unlikable again. Uh, talking about specifically like the Jack Benny show or Jackie Gleason as Ralph Cramden. I mean, they were, they weren't unlikable, but Jack Benny's character in the, you know, in his earliest radio and TV sitcoms was, you know, this fantastically rich guy who was almost, you know, who, who had such weird tastes that, you know, he was, he was, really hard to empathize with to a common audience. Like, he had this mm-hmm. vault in the basement where he kept his money, and he spent all his time counting it. Uh, and... Duck. <laughs> no. The, the famous radio play, uh, DuckTales. Yeah. <laughs> and there's... there's... like a hurricane in Duckburg. Race car and there's, plays there's... an aeroplane. And there's a Jackie, and there's Jackie Gleason's character Ralph Cramden, who of course was was ultimately likable, but at the same time, you know, he had a tumultuous relationship with his wife Alice, for one thing. And there, there's one episode in particular that comes to mind where he's uh, he's on this uh, he's on this radio program, this radio quiz show, and, uh, and you know, the, uh, it's he's there with his wife Alice, and the the final question is, you know, name the president who succeeded Grover Cleveland, and Alice uh, gets it wrong, and he spends the entire episode berating her for getting such a silly thing wrong. When of course, as it turns out, Grover Cleveland, you know, was succeeded twice because he had a non-consecutive presidency. So the episode ends with the the producers coming back coming to their apartment saying, Oh no, no, we actually got this wrong. The judges corrected it. And you know, you get one more chance to to try and get the the ten thousand dollars or so it turns out that, you know, Ralph Cramden has been the, you know, has been a jackass. You know, he's been, you know, abusing his wife for for no good reason. So so it it peaks and valleys, as you say, but I just want to say it had it had a valley before it had the peak that you identified. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, I would also pose the question of to what degree uh, does the likability of certain kinds of traits change over time? So the one sitcom I think of, and I want to pose this, is um, you guys watch uh, – if you ever watch How I Met Your Mother, right? Like the yeah. characters on that show are pretty likable, but at the same time they do stuff that I feel like from a textbook perspective or perspective of somebody who is fairly like you know, strict in their, in their moral view of the world, they would not be likable. Like, like, like Barney's character, right? It's like he's a flanderer, right? And that would be yeah. seen as undesirable. But he's very likable as a character. Um, but like, so what degree is this good or bad? What do you guys think about that stuff? I mean, a lot of it's about how it's played. That, in a way, um, How I Met Your Mother seems very similar to It's Always Sunny, and that just the fact that you mentioned that there is a, a, a wiki for It's Always Sunny, would you go as far as to say that there's like a large um, amount of world building going on with the show? That there are sort of recurring things. That there's uh, there's there's little um, little pieces of lore that are introduced that come back. 
Oh yeah, Char- Charlie Day talks uh, talked in one of the interviews I watched with him about how they liked Arrested Development a lot and how there's yeah. there's, there's there's elements of that. It's not as profound. Like one example is I just saw an, uh, an episode where they make a commercial to sell some merchandise and it's taped over a videotape of a bunch of events that are that are videotaped in like the second season. So it's like you see like like in like, when they were trying to make a news show for public access, right? It's the same VHS tape and like the beginning and end of the tape are like D being hosed off with a fire extinguisher. <laughs> <laughs> like that is what happened when they were doing it the first time around because uh, they were trying to get her to run into a burning building and save these cats but she didn't know that the building was going to be on fire because they didn't tell her so like you need to go into this room and get these cats and come out and we'll videotape it and then they set the building on fire in the hopes of making like big news that everyone would want to watch and they were famous um, and so like there's a, they make a commercial for their merchandise which is terrible because it's all shot badly and they don't know what they're doing and there's a bunch of women with really large breasts for no reason uh, and because that's what Danny Vito loves, and they all talk about it. Uh, and then at the end, it's like D being hosed off with fire extinguisher. And so, if you watch the second season, you recognize it, but it's not really obscure, right? Like, like it's it's a, yeah. it's a callback, but it's not. It's not required to understand the meaning of later episodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely like they like to make callbacks and like to construct the world. Um, the Hutch is a recurring character, like the actor who played the Hutch. Uh, in, in the, the Joe Schmo show. Yeah, I was wondering, was also, are, you, yeah. are you referring to the Joe Schmo show as if everyone knows who the Hutch is? <laughs> well, the Hutch is, the Joe Schmo show is the best show ever, so I think it, it's important it, for it people was, to know about it. to the point where I'm surprised that there continues to be reality television. Yeah. I, like, the Joe Schmo show is to reality television what Madame Bovary is to the romance novel. Yeah, exactly. Like, once you've read it, you don't need any more. Yeah, like, it's, it's, it's done. It completely ends the genre for all time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, yeah, there was an actor... He He's now the he's the husband and of the of Emily Deschanel, uh, who is the star of Bones, um, uh, along with that guy David Boreanaz. Um, but yeah, but and, and it's, it's, what's his name? Um, I, this is another thing where I should have looked up before I opened my mouth. But yeah, no, he plays a recurring character named uh, Cricket, uh, who starts out as a priest. And like rapidly and finally becomes this sort of like homeless drifter that they enlist in their schemes from time to time to like great detriment to his physical and emotional well being. Uh, but yeah, but he's a recurring character. So if you know what's happened to him, you'll know. But otherwise, he just shows up as a random homeless guy and you kind of figure, okay, they know a homeless guy who they're going to pay to get involved in their ridiculous nonsense. Um, but it just turns out that he also was in love with the girl at one point and all this other stuff. So there's a recurring character of like a soldier from Iraq who uh, first shows up in a wheelchair because he twisted his knee, but they think he's handicapped. So their opinion of him falls drastically. But then when he stands up, they all want to be his friend again. And <laughs> I don't know. She wants to girl wants to get with him. And he comes back later as like a boyfriend character. But, uh, but yeah, it's not required. Like, it's not really, it's, it's not heavily serialized as a show. But it definitely borrows from shows like Arrested Development that try to world build yeah. right, and, and build a texture around it. Um, so... So yeah, I mean, it, uh, my experiences in Philadelphia have shown me that the show seems pretty accurate. Like so, so I don't know about. You mean you mean like like meteorologically? Uh, yeah, yes, exactly. Yes, in terms of the major exports and uh, the, the the infrastructure of the city, and then just the general feel of a lot of the in- environment and, and the sort of like at least the way that the people think about the city as they're in it. The, the episode where they all meet Philly fans and, and like how like there's this widespread acceptance that Philly fans are horribly violent people and will like beat up anybody for any reason and like they just like walk through a room and there'll be like two Philly fans just fighting each other and they're both women and they're just like punching each other in the face. Um, like that gives me a certain like 
from that sense of familiarity with the city. Not to insult Philadelphia, I feel like this is an idea that even Philadelphia has embraced somewhat reluctantly with a certain amount of charm and fondness, um, that their city is full of rage. Uh, and sort of like not the kind of rage that comes from an inferiority complex, just the kind of rage that comes from bloodthirst. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. All these Scandinavian imports. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But I've just been ranting about it. I also, am, I'm, I mean, I guess how boring is it? Just like this is the thing that happened in that episode of that show that I watched. But it's all like rattling around in my head because I've been binging on it for the last few weeks. I'm sure you guys have done that, where you just like watch six episodes in a row of a show. Yeah. And- I wrote a post for uh, overthinking a bit about this, which was called uh, uh, "Towards a Theory of Television Snackability," which is that, like, because you know, um, it, it wasn't the the most considered thing I've ever written for the site, but it was not. But it was, um, yeah, based around the idea that because the economics of television now involves selling us episodes in large blocks rather than sort of dripping them out IV style, you know, one little drop at a time. Uh, the defining characteristic of shows is that they can be watched in binges. Right. Um, And there are different ways to do it. Right. A law and order binge is very different from a wire binge. It's very different from a lost binge. It's very different from a uh, like a 30 rock binge. Uh, Almost all of which I've done. Um, The uh, I guess I'm TV bulimic. I, uh, you know, (laughs) how do you purge television? You write a a show. Yeah, it's a little (laughs) it's a it's a little it's a little thing called (laughs) www.overthinkingit.com. <laughs> That's how you purge television. Um, that uh, you know, right? You have to be able to watch these things uh, five or six at a stretch. Now, maybe TV Land, the existence of TV Land, proves me wrong. But I, I think I would really walk away from the television if I had to watch six I Love Lucys at a stretch. But I will definitely, you know, I've been known to watch six uh, Weeds, six episodes, six episodes of Weeds. Weedses, um, the United States of Terras, or you know, I don't know, which, which is which is really selfish because you're really only supposed to watch like two weeds at a time and then pass. It <laughs> <laughs> don't pull cut the weeds. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, you know, I will smoke that bitch down to a millimeter uh, if it's. Um, even you know, even if I'm alone in my apartment, just clicking play, play, play on the uh, the Netflix instant streaming, longing for the dulcet tones of of John, Dave, and Mark in my ear on a on a lonely Saturday night. Call back. So the um, you know, the, <laughs> like binging is a is a, a characteristic of television these days, right? Right? Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Yeah, definitely. Bin- Which is why you shouldn't start watching Oz, because then you'll binge and it'll drive you insane. <laughs> yeah, Oz would not be a good one to binge on. Oh, no, no. Too many people thrown naked and screaming into the hole. Thank you very much. You can only take one or two of those before breakfast. It's, it, you know what it is that does it for me? It's the enigmatic uh, rappers that the, that the poet guy does, where he's like, you know, Napoleon in 1846. <laughs> was like, you know, it's like a red, and maybe it has something to do with the story, but maybe it doesn't. Yeah, and binging on the wires is tough business too. I mean, I guess you do follow it, but but those some of those episodes are really slow, and you wonder whether I mean, I wonder whether I got anything out of them at all. And be like waiting for the next thing to happen. I mean, do you ruin it by binging it? Um, I mean, the next thing that I'm going to be watching is the fourth season of Mad Men. That's what I've got waiting for me when I'm finished with uh, with Sunny. 
And uh, I mean, I guess I'm looking forward to that. But I also wonder whether rushing through it is going to make it less of a of a total utility experience, or make it less comprehensible, or like less able to digest. Or, or I don't know. Having having watched season four of Mad Men uh, live, or as, as it was live, well, live. I was there in I was, the 60s. I was in the 60s. Documentary and the events were filmed in real time. I I am Don. No, I'm kidding. I'm not Don Draper. I'm I'm barely uh, Ken Cosgrove. But you're, you're our own John Ham, John. <laughs> you're too kind. But having watched it as it was airing, uh, there's there's a consensus among you know among fans of any television show, but among you know literate fans of TV shows in particular that you know there are going to be some good episodes, some bad episodes, and there are some that really advance the the season story, and some that are kind of just you know passing time to to get things along until those episodes. So. You know, I, I I watched it as it was as it was airing, and I followed a lot of the the critical discussion of it online at the time. And I wonder what it would be like to to watch a bunch of them at a stretch, so that you know you w- there wouldn't be this sense of longing, like oh this this week wasn't one of the better ones. They're probably just I probably just got to hold over until next week or the week after when it'll be another good one again. Whereas you know if you're doing if you're marathoning them, you know, in, in three or four hours, you're going to catch, you know, at least one good episode in every stretch. So I'm wondering if that would, if that would change your overall opinion of the season. Like my, my viewing of the season was, was tinged by a lot of the ups and downs and a lot of the all over the place, whereas yours might be a, a broader acceptance of the season as a whole. Mm. It's, I mean, it, yeah, it's difficult getting it kind of filtered out in drips and drabs week after week because... Uh, oh, what? I mean, I, I don't want to disparage the episodes that, that kind of spin their wheels in place, especially for a show like Mad Men, where part of the point is creating uh, creating texture and just having you experience the texture of the show. And it's not, you know, it's not super goal-oriented narratively. Yeah, but it's, yeah, but it's still possible to do that and be good. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not like... Uh, atmosphere is not an end in itself, Atmosphere should be something that should be accomplished through the setting and the dialogue and the acting and the the choices that otherwise evoke a story. It's not atmosphere is not just an end in itself. Sure, I guess I guess so, but I think that there. I mean, things can have a different kind of narrative pace at which the you know at which the wheels of the plot turn. And and I I don't know. Mad Men is not super plot driven anyway. I mean, certainly sure. there are things. Certainly there are things that happen. But I I I don't know. From a certain point of view, a lot of it is is just spinning its wheels you know what i mean a lot of it is just another mm. I, I i mean the most plot oriented arc i can think of on mad men was the the end of the um the end of the third season when they're starting the new uh uh they're starting the new agency and it um you know it's this kind of cloak and dagger sort of thing like will they won't they uh can they get it done you know can they form the right alliances and things like this 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 is like one of the only instances other otherwise it's like you know, I don't know, you know, long lingering uh, tracking shot of, you know, of Betty laying on the fainting couch. You know what I mean? Or uh, that that or the moments they play for comedy or, or the moments they play for comedy and or shock value. Like in in season three, for instance, where, you know, to, to talk about it obliquely, where character suffers a, a particularly uh, grievous and sudden injury uh, you know that, that's a shocking moment and then there's a lot of plot that unfurls after that like oh what's going to happen to the office are we going to get him to the hospital in time etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah but yeah, yeah but yeah otherwise it was just the, the main the main thrust of the show yeah it develops at a very at a very slow pace uh, yeah i mean not to say glacial but yeah very very 
very slow pace. And it seems like every it seems like every season of Mad Men, I recall people saying, uh, you know, in the first half of the season, God, this isn't going anywhere. You know, you know what I mean? It like it mm. seems to be the complaint that 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 people have of that show. And maybe it'll be. I I, I guess what I'm saying is this is a long way of saying I, I agree with you. And maybe the experience will be improved by kind of uh, by kind of taking it in all at a stretch. Um, yeah, my- my theory is that you'll have a different experience of what Jeremy Bentham called the philosophic calculus, which was his theory as to how, because, you know, he was one of the, the founding utilitarian philosophers. And it was his idea of, like, how do we calculate the pleasure that is likely to arise from an action? And one of the, one of the key variables in there was propinquity, or how soon is this action going to bring pleasure? And, uh, and after that, fecundity, which is the probability that, you know, this action is going to be followed by similarly pleasurable actions. Mm. So you're you're really heightening the propinquity and fecundity of the Mad Men viewing experience by watching it in big bursts. That makes a lot of sense. Um, what do you want to get out of the show? Although, of course, this is all about art, right? This isn't really about what you get out of it. This is about you know the sort of creative mission of humanity and our sort of articulation of our imaginations and our interaction with the world, right? Like, this is about fleshing out the human project, right? That's that's what that's what the magic of television is seeking to do. Right. I thought television right. was was a couch between advertisements. Yeah, that, that, that's what it is. Oh, it's for smurfing <laughs> your Smurf when you Smurf. <laughs> <laughs> Don't Smurf your Smurf while you're Smurfing the television, Pete. You'll go blind. Yo, dog! I heard you like Smurfs, so we Smurf, 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 Smurf. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So, so speaking speaking of binging on things and whether or not it's desirable, uh, I hear someone on the podcast recently watched a movie about a comical binger on Ooh. a substance called alcohol. But yet he's <laughs> he's funny and British, so that makes it all okay. Right. If you're going to become an alcoholic, you should try to be British if it's at all possible. You should try to yeah. be Russell Brand. Yeah, it's it's a very specific set of behaviors that make alcoholism okay. Because you know, any other <laughs> any other any other form of addiction, it's you know, always always a sign of always a sign of weakness or villainy in any other form of popular culture. But alcoholism is okay if you're British or if you're Dean Martin. Those are the only two people who are allowed to be drunk on stage or in scene and have it have it be, you know, regularly okay. Any anyone else just just not acceptable. Uh, or if you're a novelist, I guess. And even then, it's kind of tragic. Yeah, I get right. I guess so. Um, the uh, I like the um, I you know I don't know. I, Arthur was not a good movie. It was not a good remake, and it was not a good movie uh, in itself. I saw it this this weekend, but I do. I still like Russell Brand. I really I, you know I really like him, and I can't um, I can't quite. Uh, uh, no, here's here's let me pinpoint what I what I like about him. It's it, he he combines a seemingly sort of high intellectual attainment. That is to say, maybe it's just the accent that makes him sound that way, uh, because you know, to to an American, any Brit sounds smart. But um, uh, just by virtue of the fact that they they talk that way. But uh, like arrested development, yeah, yeah, exa- right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's tragic. It's a tragic arrested development joke. Um, but he he seems to to combine you know. Know, a great deal of intellect with a with a kind of anarchy, uh, you know that that um, and you know if you know anything about his his biography, you know he he was addicted to drugs and sort of saw the saw some real lows, uh, right? Some real kind of low points in his life, and so he's um, he's sort of familiar with life, kind of beyond the pale of of uh, social acceptance. Um, 
so I, you know, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to sort of trivialize either thing by by comparing them, but the, but the um, the idea of of someone who, you know, despite high intellectual attainment, is is still kind of willing to transgress social boundaries uh, and not be a, I don't know, not be a sort of stuffed shirt, right? Um, as a uh, as an intellectual, like that that combination of of um, of the Apollonian and the Dionysian uh, makes him a sort of intriguing. Um, performer and one who is kind of uh, always sort of exciting to me and always kind of unpredictable because he's very, I don't know, you, you sort of don't know what he's going to come out with next. Um, all right, I can end my love letter to Russell Brand now, uh, except to say that I've watched many things about him on YouTube and I've probably talked about him on this this very podcast. But he's, he's given kind of an unfair task. Um, you know, he's loaded up with, with very good uh, co-stars, uh, but kind of asked to carry the movie on the force of his own charisma. And, and I don't think you really can do that without things like, I don't know, plot, character development, theme, uh, <laughs> you know, all the other apparatus of a, of a good film. Now, uh, this film is, is kind of ambivalent on, on the subject of... Um, uh, on the subject of alcoholism, he he does go to AA, and right thirty years ago when the original w- was made, um, it it was not quite such a thing. The idea of kind of uh, we didn't have celebrity rehab, you know what I mean? The idea of sort of twelve step programs or of like inpatient treatment for addiction was not uh, at the forefront of the public imagination the way it is, uh, and the way our our celebrities are now. It it was sort of looked at. Uh, looked on as what a, a sort of personal issue or a personal failing or a, like a failure of will to drink or just or maybe just a um, I mean to drink to excess and uh, you know despite negative consequences and um, uh, I mean, you know and to sort of persist in doing so despite the fact that that your life is falling apart and this is but it's not it's not um, it's not presented as that. Uh, uh, I don't know. It's it's sort of presented as a uh, as a it's presented as a character flaw. That is to say, the the alcoholism is more a symptom of the larger uh, of the larger character disease, which is what childishness or hedonism or selfishness, uh, rather than being uh, a disease in in itself. Uh, the way it's you know I don't know what treated in the medical literature, right? It's kind of secondary to the to the. Uh, to the larger problem. And I, I, uh, God, it's been a a while since I saw the 1981 movie on Betamax. um, Right. Because that's how I would have seen it. But, but uh, it it wasn't that big of an issue back then. Right. He he wasn't an alcoholic per se. He was just colorful. Right. No, no Uh, one has seen, no no, one has seen Dudley Moore in, in, in the original. I mean, I haven't I haven't seen the original Arthur um, or the remake, but, but but I'm familiar with I'm familiar with uh, with sort of the general oeuvre, like the general not oeuvre, but the general feel of him. And I definitely think that you've seen a step up. And I've I've written about this a couple of times. I think I wrote about this when I wrote the, my Hurt Locker post, right? Where like the difference between the lethal weapon and the Hurt Locker is that um is this advance of you know, and I'll, I'll rephrase it now, this sort of advancement of this notion of biopower, this sort of like Foucault-style societal control of people through the public interest in their health and well-being, right? And that's the one of the ways that the authority asserts control over the individual is by determining how the individual 
individual is healthy and, and how the individual is sick. And things that become that are undesirable become illnesses because that gives people the authority to to declare a sort of uh, stewardship over them. Um, but the um, so you, but it's more. I mean, it's more than that. It's it's um, you know the authority can kind of dictate the terms on which. Uh, uh, dictate the terms on which the ba- the, the battle of sickness and health will be fought and right yes. and and the the sort of concomitant with the advance that you're talking about is is a is another sort of progression from from seeing um seeing sort of psychological illnesses as illnesses of the soul as it were to being illnesses of the you know brain chemistry or you know neurological uh, illnesses in in some way and i think that's I, I think you're saying that kind of at the same time as you're you're saying the other thing right yeah 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 i mean i think when i think about the old way of saying that you were an alcoholic is that you have a drinking problem right right which is a very different phrase to say like i have a drinking problem to like i am an alcoholic Alcoholic, like I am addicted to alcohol, because um, you know there's a different attitude. A problem is something that's solvable, right? It's a problem is is sort of like a a, a, a structure. It's a, it's a it's a it's a formal structure. It's something that that exists in thinkings and imaginings, and is in the realm of the sort of of the law and the natural law and human law and like and people's ability to to organize things that are happening to them. Whereas you know being an alcoholic is something that your scary chemicals are doing to you inside of you, and and that's the world that you can't really plumb with your mind, right? Because it's the world of brain cells and, and cruel realities of the limits of your, your ability to sustain yourself as an organism and all this other stuff. Like, it, it, you know, there's, there's the brain and mind divide and... and I sure. Feel like, I mean, and yes, the, it does. It does kind of reflect, I guess, like current knowledge about about addiction, about full blown addiction, which is that it it sort of hijacks the. Oh, what I I read this from. I think Tim Swan, uh, podcast guest and frequent OTI commenter. Uh, it hijacks the mesolimbic dopamine reuptake pathways, or or you know things like this. That is to say, uh, it hijacks your brain into thinking that like getting the drug is um, equivalent to things like eating or sleeping or breathing or. Or other kind of basic, you know, survival drives, and so it kind of hijacks your survival system. And so we, I mean, yes, we know that now. Okay, that that you know that that's how it works. But like one of the one of the um, the the uh, uh, one of the important things about how we live is the kinds of stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And it, if you're living in a world where you are kind of fundamentally not in control of your personhood, that's a very different kind of world to live in than a world in which you are. Uh, you know, uh, you have a, a ton of agency in kind of determining uh, the contents of yourself. Yeah, exactly. And and terms that are that are scientifically prescriptive are still uh, you know still semantically meaningful, right? Like like about like like there's not that there there you can refer to the same phenomenon using different kinds of language, right? You know, the whole epistemology of it, um, the whole semiotics of it, right? Like I, I can, I, I just be, just because we know a little bit more about like the pathology of alcoholism and how it works, right? And the different chemicals that are involved doesn't necessarily mean that old descriptions of it are always wrong, right? They certainly worked at the time and, and, and yeah, there are certain things about them that are incorrect, but you could also correct them on their own terms rather than insisting upon the new language. Because I think that new language brings with it new ways of thinking, uh, right? Right? It's not just oh, these are words that aren't colored by our old prejudices. The new words carry with them new prejudices, and new new beliefs, new ideas about the way people should be. Uh, and so I would say that yeah, don't be tricked. Uh, and I don't want to sound like somebody who's being anti-scientific because I'm not. But like, don't be tricked by a, a sort of formal lexicon. 
uh, into thinking that somebody who talks like that knows everything that they're talking about uh, and that everything they're saying is, is kind of exhaustive, into the, especially when you're talking about human experience. I mean, Arthur, the fictional character, doesn't have dopamine receptors. He's not a human being, right? Right. He's he's a representation. He's a, he's a signifier. So if anything, he could have a drinking problem rather than have alcoholism because you can't cure a fiction. Um, like like the med- the real life medicines don't work. Um, so so in that sense, he's a representation. Why is it that we need to represent our representations as having these kind of physical things? Well, we're trying to reflect through mimesis the things that are happening in our own lives, but while we're still existing in the realm of, of the mind, right, and, and the realm of, of kind of uh, symbol and icon and not in the realm of, like, actual therapeutic medicine. Right. Um, so, so it's important that we don't always have to use the same words all the time. It doesn't always mean the same thing. Yeah, and it's – uh, Sure. Yeah, and it's, it's important. Like, scope conditions are important. That is to say, like, the claim science makes, it makes uh, – uh, under very specific circumstances that that ought oh, to yeah. be, that ought to be defined uh you know what i mean whenever the claim is reiterated yeah. and the thing and, 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 yeah and within those circumstances it should be seen for having the sort of rightness and authority that it has and that's and then the counterpoint to it is outside the circumstances it should be seen for having the limitations that it has or at least kind of like yeah exactly or like uh, at least kind of the maybe rightness authority or like reproducibility you know what i mean like validity well, yeah, yeah, yeah. validity uh, as an objective observation but the you know yeah. the difference between the um the difference between the way professionals do science and the way amateurs kind of understand science has a lot to do with scope conditions uh you know what i mean a kind of generalizing a uh generalizing a result or a finding past what it can uh, past what it can bear um you know uh anyway um <laughs> this is not the reason that arthur is not all that great a movie uh it's not it's not all that great a movie because the characters are not super and they don't uh they don't really have a- any interesting activities going on it's about as formulaic as you um, it's about as, as formulaic as you would imagine, and it pulls all its punches. It pulls its punches about capitalism and kind of the evil of the the like the corporate machine that Arthur doesn't want to enter into. Uh, it pulls its punches about uh, you know the uses uh, the use of uh, the use and abuse of substances to, as as kind of a um, reification of his will to escape that corporate machine. It pulls its punches about the the world into which it's being. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's being released. Uh, that is to say, I think like the re- recession, it's, it's a very th- different thing to be sort of rich and irresponsible now than it was to be rich and irresponsible in, in 1981, given the, you know, the economic and political conditions of the world. And, uh, though there or at are, least our ability to find out about them there, sorry, <laughs> and, yeah, or at least our ability to know about them in, on like short notice and the transparency of the inequalities. Well, okay, yeah, that's a good. I mean, you know, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Nineteen eighty one wasn't a great year either. I mean, we're just coming off the inflation heavy end of the seventies. Uh, you know, what with what with inflation and stagflation and various things. So, I mean, it's the it's the economic boom in America at least that Reagan gets well gets a lot of the credit for. But, right, uh, but yeah, in the in the very beginning of the eighties, it wasn't a great time. Either. Well, I mean, the um, I, you know, eighty one, the hostages were released because you know Reagan engineered it so that they, they'd be released. And yeah, I mean, there's a sense of, I mean, there's a, a sense of things kind of, uh, kind of on the mend. Whereas uh, I, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't need to get political. Nineteen eighty one was a year of very of severe economic recession. Um, yeah, and it was a it was a, revere, a severe economic recession because they they raised the interest rates to try to to change the way that the monetary system worked, 
right? Because of, they were trying to deal with the inflation problems from the 70s, and that was the whole Volcker thing, right? And like, so yeah, I mean, you can look back and like apply the 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 things that have been said about Reagan and think, oh, as soon as Reagan got elected, it was morning in America. No, like his his approval rating was very low. Like interest rates went very high. It was almost impossible to get a house. I think that it was like. It, um, you know, it was not a necessarily a great a great time, um, and I think that maybe it was reflected then too. But mm. I do think that now we do have a different sort of historical perspective on American affluence um, than we did at the time. I think, although my memory of it, of course, is shady because I was one. <laughs> so, but yeah, yeah, yeah. People have this idea about what happened in the Reagan years. It's just nonsense. I mean, maybe people who were alive during the Reagan years can corroborate these things, but as somebody – and again, I'm, I'm not really supposed to talk about this stuff because it's my job and I'm kind of forbidden from talking about it. But as somebody who's done a fair amount of work um, talking about interest rate phenomena and like investment markets, uh, the early 80s were not like sunbeams and roses from like an economic or investment perspective, at least in terms of if you were an affluent person. I mean you have the, SNL, the savings and loan crisis, right, which is the closest thing – to our own crisis. Oh, I didn't think. I, you know what? I didn't think about the the SNL crisis. I yeah, well, it's, never mind what I was thinking about. But my, yeah, my so my view was highly highly colored by a thing. But so, so, to, ra- to wrangle it back uh, onto the subject of the, oh, why would you uh, do something like art. that? I know, right? <laughs> of the various Arthur's, the 1981 Arthur and the 2011 Arthur, and wow, that's that's 30 years difference between the two. It's kind of crazy. Uh, to wrangle it back on that subject, what is what is I guess the appeal of you know, during during this recession, during this period when there's you know some some popular anger at the notion of people with capital, of market of trying to sell and market this movie about this guy who is uh, ridiculously rich has no real reason for being ridiculously rich. Like it's not like he got his wealth through some Ayn Rand notion of you know the sweat of his brow. It's just I. And based on the trailer, it seems to waste a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, it, what, what what is the what is the appeal supposed to be? I mean, obviously, as Rather describes it, it wasn't very appealing of a movie to watch, and it doesn't seem like it's going to be in the theater. But I mean, much. obviously, it was conceived and planned after the the economic downturn, so that it's not it's not like Confessions of a Shopaholic, the Isla Fisher Fisher movie that came out in early two thousand and nine, and just had the bad timing of being a movie about uh, conspicuous consumption and living in debt that came out right at a time when the economy was just tanking. But it's I mean, a- this one is, is conceived as a post-recession movie. Yeah, it is. And I mean, references made to the recession. At least the, the, the production of the movie happened in, you know... Um you know, in the current sort of economic, yeah, the current economic downturn. So, like, oh, okay, I, I mean, I think a couple of things about it. Like, one, it's it's a fantasy of of sort of limitless resources, and right, like one of the things that that films and television offer us is the ability to indulge momentarily in the fantasy that we can act on certain impulses uh, without fearing the retribution of uh, of society, right? Um, you know, I've kind of harped on this a lot in, you know, especially talking about Law and Order Special Victims Unit, but they, they can be kind of fantasies of sweetness and light as well. That is to say, like, what if I could, uh, I don't know, rent out Grand Central's terminal to have a, you know, romantic dinner with my girlfriend or the girl I'm trying to date, you know what I mean? Like these, these, these sorts of things. And in that, you know, in that, um, uh, in that way, is, is, this is sort of a, what psychoanalytic literary criticism, right? The the film becomes a representational space for your most outlandish desires, um, and uh, you know, and so that's uh, that's one thing. Uh, you know, another thing is that the money is bad. 
right in the in in the movie and that the uh, the Jennifer Garner character represents the kind of uh acquisitive um you know kind of hard working uh badness of the of the the money you know her father is a contractor um who who worked his way up and he's uh they're they're crass and they are acquisitive and they are kind of business minded and they don't see kind of the beauty of things um whereas arthur is kind of a you know unique sparkly childlike soul uh set loose in the you know in the in the midst of of this um Oh, I had a second point, but I can't remember now. One, one, one was that it's one was that it's kind of fantastical. Uh, two, oh, two, I think is that it's a morality tale about you know about how the money is bad and and needs to be renounced or at least overcome, uh, you know, in order to what grow up and find yourself or something. Hmm. Do you want to grow yeah, up? Yeah. And, there is that there is that fantasy of of consumption, I guess. Like, oh, if I had if I had millions of dollars, what would I indulge? So, so yeah, okay. There is there is something to that, and I can see how that might I can see how that might appeal to a to a market in the midst of heavy recession and unemployment. Although, apparently, it really hasn't in this case. And oh, I don't. Yeah, no, it I didn't. I, I don't. I don't really know that. I mean, we we consider Arthur the original Arthur a classic, and that you know Dudley Moore gave a great performance in it, but it, it's. It hasn't really caught on the way that you know other movies from around that era, like it's not Ghostbusters or anything. <laughs> sure, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I mean Ghostbusters, which which actually Ghostbusters is interesting because it's about kind of mobilizing against. It's about mobilizing against the recession and mobilizing against the uh, the kind of larger social forces which feel kind of supernatural by uh, uh, by which I mean both powerful and menacing um, somehow. Uh, and like the the ability of of people through kind of a coordinated effort to uh you know to overcome those forces from um you know from outside arthur is more of a kind of individual buildings roman Here, oh here's the other thing i wanted to say uh, about it here's the second point i wanted to make uh, that it's a remake right like and that that uh you know um the it's it's uh, remakes are seen as as a relatively what safe bet in a uh in an environment where a lot of people are not going to the movies anymore because they've they've worked before and i think that this this was was meant to be kind of a confection you know it was meant to be kind of a, a cotton candy cloud of a movie that is uh you know very sweet not at all massy and uh forgotten the instant it's consumed right mm. to, to to bring this oh, oh sorry you can go ahead i was going to change the subject a little bit so no, change the subject so 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 i was been while you guys have been talking i've been looking up a little bit of the lore behind arthur and i think that there's some, some interesting stuff here too like why is the legacy of this franchise what it is. And I think we have to go to the writer-director of Arthur, a guy named Steve Gordon, who died of a heart attack shortly after Arthur came out. He's only like 44, and he hadn't really done a whole lot of stuff. But he had this movie that he, he won Academy Awards for it, you know, his crazy, popular, successful movie, like top five, top of his fourth highest grossing movie of the year. Big success. And so if you're wondering, well, why, was it not, why did it not become Ghostbusters? Well, he never did any follow-up work because he died. Right, and then I look back at some of the stuff he worked on before, and he did. I don't know if you guys were talking about these specifically before, but he, he worked on Barney Miller, and he worked on the Dick Van Dyke Show, and then bring it sort of like. And I'm trying to think, where does this character come from? Right, like like we were talking about the economic cycle, and we're talking about is he a social commentary? But if you go back to what 1973, which is around like All in the Family time, right? And it's like the 70s, and the down. There's a there's a show called Lots of Luck that starred, I believe, uh, uh, Dom DeLuise. Um, where it was about a uh, 
a, a guy who who uh, runs a lost and found department and is surrounded by like sort of hangers on and unemployed people uh, who all like live off of his salary. Like maybe Arthur being rich isn't the defining thing about the character of Arthur as he was written by Steve Gordon. Maybe Arthur is a character who is primarily indolent and like the fact that he is rich is just sort of a circumstance that they created for the movie. All right. And like maybe this is like a commentary that he has on sort of work and leisure in the human condition. And and maybe part of why the re- remake six failed is that maybe it failed to capture what Steve Gordon was saying about people. Uh, because Arthur isn't about being rich, right? Maybe. I mean, of course, I haven't seen the original one, so I don't know. But I'm just sort of, like, looking at his history of writing, like, you know, for Chico and the Man, you know, and, like, uh, was it Good Time Harry, the TV series, which is about <laughs> a womanizing sports writer st- starring, like, uh, what is that, Ted Bessel and Eugene Roche? Like, just, like, random sitcoms and stuff. I just don't see this theme in his work. And, of course, you don't want to just say extrapolate intention from catalog. I mean, that's that's BS high school English major stuff. But, like, you know, why not, right? Well, uh, I guess we should open up to open it up to you. If you have anything substantive you want to say, uh, you can come leave a comment on the show notes on the site. I hope you download the overview, uh, the copy of the Karate Kid. Check it out. I, I'm looking forward to watching it myself because it's the first one I haven't been on. So I get to experience it like a listener. Uh, and I'm looking forward to that. You can get it on overthinkingit.com slash store. Uh, and uh, in the meantime, visit us every day during the week at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny if it probably doesn't deserve I liked the overthinking it podcast until they all got unlikable we don't even act like human beings anymore well we all keep scheming to one up each other to get that, that precious prize which is uh, what are what are the stakes again? What are we in this for? We have to get into the boy's soul. I mean, the boy's hole. The boy's what? It's a uh, always sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> Day man, oh fighter of the nightmare, oh champion of the sun. Everybody, ah, oh, you're a master of karate and friendship for everyone. <laughs>